Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. This is your host, Bill Shute, and today we're broadcasting to you from the Majestic Cafe at 911 King Street in historic Old Town, Alexandria, just a short drive down the Potomac from our nation's capital. It's a beautiful place. It's got wonderful art deco. It's really reminiscent of its origins. It started in 1932. Even though it has gone through a series of owners and a few changes along the way, it's still very much in the heart of Old Town activity. I highly recommend it. It's also just a few doors down from the National Beer Wholesalers Association. And today, our guest expert on 80 Proof Politics is the president and CEO of the NBWA, Craig Purser. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Bill. It's an honor to be here to kick off the inaugural podcast of 80 Proof Politics. Uh, great to be here. Uh, ironic that we're here uh, with a, at an institution, the Majestic, with its roots to 1932, which was, wait for it, one year prior to the repeal of Prohibition. Hard to believe, 85 years ago in this great nation, for a period of 13 years, we had an experience unlike any other we can think of where alcohol was forbidden. It was illegal to manufacture, sell, or transport any kind of beer, wine, and spirits for 13 years. That I can't imagine. So to the end of Prohibition and to your appearance here today on 80 Proof, cheers, brother. Cheers, and kick off to a great podcast. The trade associations play a fabulous, a very vital role in policy creation here in Washington. In, in fact, according to the American Society for Association Executives, there's something like 2,500 trade associations in D.C. And yes, there is an association for associations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can find associations for everything from manufacturing to hospitals to even sand and gravel as their own association. Absolutely. And so why not beer wholesalers? Yeah, so I, in, the, in the den of all this massive concentration of voices trying to get policymakers' attention, how do you make sure that NBWA stands out among the crowd? Well, one of the things you've got to do in order in order to make any kind of an impression is differentiate yourself. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a thousand percent right. You've got uh, associations and interest groups in this town from anything that anybody could, you know, want to pursue as a hobby or an interest. Um, all the way to, to widget manufacturers. And what, what, what's been my experience is you've got to differentiate. You've got to identify some things that maybe make you a little different. I mean, you know, where we are right now in an advocacy environment is we're in a highly charged, very partisan and political kind of uh, time period. Lots and lots of uh, antagonism and, and frustration and anger. And one of the things that we're really trying to do as an association during that time period is swim upstream and talk about bringing people together. One of the greatest things about the product that we get to represent is that beer can absolutely uh, drive a lot of commonality. It can bring folks together when you close your eyes and you think about beer, you think about wonderful experiences, I think about uh, backyard barbecues, I think about college graduations, I think about wedding receptions, and I also think about an affordable luxury at the end of a long day where you just may want to enjoy something that'll, that'll uh, you know, bring a little smile to your eye. And that's part of what we try to do when it comes to our advocacy programs. You know, to that point, I noticed on your website that you had some press releases 
earlier this year around the Super Bowl, and one of them mentioned that Super Bowl is the seventh biggest beer drinking occasion in America. How, how, how do you even distinguish that? Well, it, it's funny because we, we we run numbers for everything. There are all kinds of holidays that you may not identify as a as a holiday for beer. Obviously, the heights of summer and Memorial Day and Labor Day and the Fourth of July, but the Super Bowl comes right up there because it really is a national uh, it is a national activity. Well. Let's take a step back for just a second and tell me a bit about your membership. So it's basically the independent beer distributors, I assume, in every state in the union. Every state and every congressional district. So we, we've got 3,000 membership member companies, 3,000 locations where they distribute beer. And what that's done is that's created this kind of wonderful dynamic of, it, it's kind of got... It's got three different, very distinct values. One is it's it's a significant uh, contributor to the economy. Um, our industry, independent beer distributors, directly employ 141,000 hardworking men and women, mm. and you know that's bigger than many Fortune 100 companies as True. far as total total headcount and, and employees. So there's an economic uh, contribution, over $60 billion of direct contribution and impact to local economies. Um, These are good jobs and good wages. Uh, I I often remark that nobody that we represent pays minimum wage. These are all jobs that are above minimum wage. And everybody has health insurance, and that's a different kind of dynamic lately. So there's economic value. There's also commercial value. Um, you know, the beer industry is intensely competitive. But one of the things that our system of distribution, where you've got a manufacturer or an importer, where you've got a designated wholesaler distributor, and you've got a licensed retailer, is you have a commercial value that is that is that's put together. It's a bit of an antitrust buffer, for one thing. When you think about how much selection there is on the beer aisle, right. it's your favorite retailer. Maybe versus the soda aisle, and and that's not by accident. Uh, that's because you've got an independent tier that is working to bring thirsty consumers that wide variety of, of products that they want. And the final value, the final value for the system is there's actually a regulatory value, and that's really important because you know we made mention of the fact that this place where we are today was first first opened in 1932, and. Um, when prohibition was repealed 85 years ago, part of what policymakers wanted to do is they wanted to ensure that we didn't have problems that we had that had led to, to prohibition. When you look back on history, a lot of the problems that we had was actually an industry behaving badly. We weren't concerned about the whole notion of overconsumption. Americans drank far more alcohol before prohibition than they do today. And so there was uh, a lot of public health risk. So so we have all of these these beautiful reasons that come together, that, and, that, and that's part of the story that we tell. That's part of what we're working to do day in and day out as we're advocating for a wide waterfront of issues for our members. Yeah, this is a great story, and you've raised a fantastic list of economic impact about the presence in each congressional district. Give me an example on a daily basis about how you get that message delivered to a policymaker. So, for instance, we just had our fly-in last month, and we had nearly 700 distributors from across the country come in. And essential to those meetings is going in with the right facts. I think any time you're in the advocacy business, you want to present the best facts. Um, you know, as we as we try to tell our children, uh, you know, I want the best presentation of the truth. And so, what you're doing is you're trying to make an economic case for your reason for being. Politicians, policymakers love jobs. 
They love the number, they love the quantity, but they also love the value and the quality. So we're constantly making that part of our, of our calling card. So we arm them with the facts, we arm them with the, with the details. You want to customize as best you can to that congressional district. And sometimes it's different because these districts sometimes don't make as much sense. Oh, yeah. But by the same token, what we're trying to do is demonstrate to congressperson, you know, A, B, or C, that we employ a lot of folks in your district and we're a very important uh, participant. And then obviously we talk about those other values, the commercial value, we talk about the regulatory value, we talk about, uh, when, we, when we talk about that economics, we, we talk about the philanthropic involvement. All of my member companies are very involved in their communities. They give very generously to a number of local and, and regional and national causes. There's funders of higher education, there's funders of, of health of healthcare, of, of you know many name many names of, of hospital wings that have been that have been uh, named after these families that own these businesses that are very very deep roots in their communities. And so that's part of your sales pitch too. You want folks to know that in addition to being a good employer, they're also a good citizen. So, um, and then obviously, as you're talking about the particular issue, you want that issue to match up with that policy And not every issue is for every person, but kind of our philosophy is a 60% friend is not a 40% enemy. And as somebody told me years ago, I'd rather have half of something than all of nothing. So we have a lot of friends in a lot of places, um, and that's very representative of the members we represent. But you walked right up to this. Uh, my next question was going to be that type of message delivery doesn't just happen here in Washington, does it? Give me a balance on what you think is a good mix between doing it here versus doing it back in the congressional district. It, it's got to be both, Bill. I'm telling you, the, the, the importance of, of being in D.C., you know, for a fly-in, for instance, um, you want to be there. Whatever your industry, whatever your cause, you want to have as much grasp and reach and representation as you possibly can. But equally important is that activity back home. Uh, one of the things that our members have for all of their operations that ties them together is they have a big warehouse. And these are warehouse, you know, climately controlled warehouses. The logistics are front and center. They're very efficient. Uh, these are not garages. They're not trucks and sheds. They are highly functioning distribution centers. But also part of that, of that uh, distribution operation of that warehouse is a community room. And that community room is where they'll, the, the distributor will invite their, their uh, supplier partners or their retailers in to try out new products. It's also a place where they will host a wide variety of community events. And, you know, they say that charity begins at home. And so if you think of advocacy, kind of like charity beginning at home, you want as many policymakers as you can into your physical facility. So I don't care what your association is, what you're interested in. Once somebody comes to your home or your place of business, there's a connection. And that's going to make you more effective as an advocate uh, for a cause or for an issue or for whatever it is that you're calling on that day. Now, you mentioned your fly-in, which I gathered just happened last month. I want to come back to that in just a second. What are some of the other ways in which you're keeping the voice and the face 
of beer distributors in front of policymakers here in town? Well, I think it's it also includes being present, being present at, at, at political events and being present at charitable, charitable events. Um, our association is very active in the political arena. We have um, a large political action committee that allows us to support a wide cross-section of members of Congress. And that's something that we don't shy away from. We're very proud of that. Our members um, value participation in the political system. And it's interesting because um, lots and lots of times um, you may have a policymaker, like I mentioned, that's, that's not 100% on your issues. But the reality of it is, as long as that person is, a, is an elected member of Congress, you're going to need to have a dialogue and a relationship with, you, with them. So the whole dynamic is being present. It's being present at the political events. But I also made mention of the fact that my members are very involved in, in philanthropy and other uh, worthwhile causes. Right. So we try to, to be present at all, at all fronts. We try to be front and center. We try to develop and, and maintain great relations with key congressional staffers. Lots and lots of times, folks from out of town think, oh, I've got to talk to Congressman so-and-so or Senator such-and-such. Many, many times, those young people are the ones that are making the difference that are out there. And so, you know, and, and you can't be all things to all people. So lots of times we'll focus on committees of jurisdiction for issues that we see that are coming out. We'll be spending more time with those places. You know, kind of like any other adage, you know, you hunt where the ducks are. Yeah, absolutely. So I assume you use the typical advocacy pool tools that most do in town, like white papers, you have leave-behind pieces. Do you do advertising and social media? We do. We do We do advertising, but, you know, we're not a gigantic budgeted organization. We are, you know, I, I would call us kind of a mid-major. We like to say that we fight above our weight class. We're, we're proud of the fact that lots of times people think we have a bigger budget than maybe we have more employees than we do. But... What we try to do is we try to have outsized influence, and and um, we talked about uh, the economic resources and making sure that you've got those those materials and collateral. But increasingly, being present in, in the media is important. Um, you know, and, and it's digital. It's it's being on all of the different platforms, and it's Facebook, and it's Twitter, and it's Instagram, and it's making sure that you are where the policymakers and the staff are, so that you could just remind them of what it's all about. Oh, it's hard to imagine a day when I don't look at an article online and see a pop-up advocacy. Oh, absolutely. And, and so, you know, and I think what you want to do is you want to make sure that that strategy is is effective and it's good bang for your buck. So, so some of it's maintenance and some of it is reminding people who you are and that you're relevant. But some of, some of it is very, very pointed. And the ability now with, with uh, digital media to pinpoint, to geofence, to get in and, and get your message at the folks that are most important to whatever your issue is, uh, it's, it's never been more important. And it's almost never been, in a lot of ways, it's kind of scary how you can household that information. Oh, boy. Isn't um, that the truth? You know, it's, it's getting a lot of attention on the Hill um, with a number of the digital players that are being criticized and scrutinized. But the power that is there uh, in some of those platforms really is similar. So true. And it's going to only increase, I'm sure. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? 
or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. So I told you I'd circle back to your legislative conference. I took a quick look at some of the agenda you had. It looked like fascinating wealth of information that your distributors would want to hear about. I noticed at one session you were joined by Representative Earl Blumenauer of Oregon and Dave Joyce of Ohio. They're the bipartisan chairs of the Marijuana Caucus in the House. So why was that important for your members to hear from them? Well, it's, it's funny because uh, since cannabis first became legalized in California back in 1996 for medical usage, um, this is an issue that is that has evolved, and in a lot of ways it's evolved more quickly than some have expected. Um, in, in 2012, Colorado was the first large-scale state to legalize recreational use of cannabis, and since that time period, uh, nearly 10-plus states have followed. Um, and so in most states, there is a legal market for medical or, or and or rec- recreational marijuana. So it's front and center, and it is coming our way. Um, part of what our, our group is very interested in, having been a previously prohibited product, is ensuring that the regulation is appropriate, ensuring that we have the best kind of a both worlds as it relates to state and federal control for this product. Um, it's so interesting because um, when, when we advocate around this or we educate, we, we really kind of we start out and we make it real simple. We talk about uh, regulation, we talk about revenue collection, because that's important. Yep. And then we also talk about research. And, and it's not in any particular order, but we've got to have all three of those if we're going to have sound policy around this previously prohibited product. Um, I was out in California recently, and uh, I don't know about you, um, but I always ask groups that I speak to, how many of you have been to a legal marijuana dispensary? And whatever the number of hands that go up, it's not enough, because especially in my industry, we've got to know more about this product in order to, to, to be experts about it. Um, I get a question once a week about this, and of course I'm not in the marijuana business, but people look at a regulated industry of what do you think? Yeah, sure. And so uh, it was interesting, I was in an Uber, and it, I don't know why, but I just thought, hey, my guy, my driver seems to know a little bit about marijuana, and I asked him a question or two, and I said, tell me about you know this place versus that place, or is it all wide open now? And he said, yeah, as a date, certain such and such. Uh, all of those dispensaries with a handful of exemptions are all recreational, all wide open. And he said, but it's so interesting because the price point in that legal, in, he didn't say legal, he said in that store is 300 bucks per unit, I can't remember if it was a quarter or an ounce, I'm not an expert, but uh, he was funny, and he said, my guy is 80 bucks. And I said, your guy is 80 bucks, how does that work? I said, is he, is he legal? And he said, well, I don't know. That's not really my problem. He said he's, he's on, the, on the Weed Maps app. And I said, you know what? That's so interesting because I think until we take care of the black market, until we eradicate the folks that are operating in the shadows, this is going to be a very difficult product to, to regulate. Um, you know, we still in the state of Virginia, the Alcohol Beverage Control Commission, the ABC, 
will occasionally break up an illegal still right. in the hills of Virginia. Right. You know, that's just 100 miles from here. And so you've got to, if you're serious about, about legalizing a product, you've got to have a full and robust discussion about some of the challenges and how you get this right. I think, for instance, you know, we, we as employers and as Main Street business advocates have not had the right amount of discussion about what do we do about workplace safety? What do we do about general liability? What do we do about highway safety and transportation? Um, so there's there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done, and, and increasingly I think we're going to be very present in helping advocate for, uh, like I said, effective more research, effective regulation, and revenue collection. Well, last question on that point then. It took a constitutional amendment to overturn prohibition. It was a national initiative. But it resulted in a state-based regulatory environment, right? Is this a model for that type of oncoming new product? I, I think it absolutely should be. I think that, that, that uh, both this industry and government needs to borrow from the successful alcohol regulatory system. But the problem is there was an 18th Amendment that actually prohibited alcohol. Right. We don't have a constitutional amendment to repeal. We don't have a Section 2 of the 21st Amendment, which specifically instructs the states to regulate the product. So, but, but interestingly, um, I actually think that this state system works really well because people from, you know, from, uh, from my home state of Oklahoma, for instance, uh, don't want Las Vegas, Nevada alcohol laws. Mm -hmm. and, sure. I, and I assure you the folks in Las Vegas don't want Oklahoma. <laughs> well put. All right, let me ask you a question about one of the tools that I think you your industry has become known for in town. What is the Daily Brew? The Daily Brew is our daily clip service, and uh, it is just simply a, a way that we communicate with our members and others uh, about items of interest around beer. I think um, communication is an important part of any association program, particularly advocacy, but um, you're, I think associations want to supply their members in some ways with the news first. So obviously there are a lot of issues that are important to you, and the, not all of the what not only those issues that people think about when they think about the beer industry. You've mentioned a few already. But I would imagine taxes are absolutely oh, important. You know, taxes are are important. Um, you know, obviously beer is, is a product that's very highly taxed. But one of the things that's uh, important to my members is the whole notion of tax reform. The 2017 tax reform bill uh, was great for providing economic stimulus, and it did provide a tax cut, a permanent tax cut, for a number of uh, you know corporations and folks on Wall Street. One of the things that it did not address in a permanent fashion was tax relief for Main Street businesses. Um, the folks that I represent are actually pass-throughs and, and S-corp companies, and so their taxes are tied to their personal uh, returns because they're the owners of the business. And, you know, while there was rate reduction for, for, for my member companies, it was not anything near that permanent 21% that corporate America got. Sure. Um, as a matter of fact, our rate reduction expires in 2025. And when you look at this, it's really, it's it's not parity and it's really not fair. And so that's an issue that's very important to my members, um, you know, because so much, this is actually small business week and uh, so many of the jobs in this in this country 
country are provided by those small businesses. So, so obviously we're working on on making uh, that tax relief permanent, and um, you know, just a very important issue. No doubt, I'm sure it is. So this is the segment of the podcast where I like to ask you a few personal questions. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about how you got started. Because I think of myself back in the day, coming right out of law school, not knowing exactly how to play the game in this town. But I knew I wanted to be here. And right. I wanted to take a role. So you're from Oklahoma. Right. And your hometown is? Tulsa. Tulsa. So let's start with, how do you explain to your second cousin back in Tulsa exactly what you do? Well, it's funny because um, I came to town uh, with my home state senator. Um, I started out as a college Don Nichols. Don Nichols from Oklahoma. I started out as a, as an intern, and I came to town. I mentioned this this term to somebody that was under forty recently, and they weren't familiar with the term. I said, I, and I caught Potomac fever, <laughs> and she looked at me like I had three heads. And and the, the the whole notion of Potomac fever is you get here and you fall in love, and you enjoy it. And uh, I knew that 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 I wanted to be here. I enjoyed working on the hill. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the youthful attitude that, that the city still has. It's I still think. very much a young town, and and it and it's it's a great place to be. And so, um, you know, I went to work for Nichols and worked for him for five years. And um, you know, not long after that, um, you know, I thought, hey, this is pretty fun. And and actually, when I left him, I, I went and I worked for Anheuser Busch as a consultant for a year. Oh. And so it was it was interesting to have that background. And um, but but it's interesting what I what I tell folks. It, as far as what I what I get to do is is I get to represent great people. I get to represent good, hardworking folks that put a lot of groceries on a lot of people's tables. My members are the kind of folks that if you get their trust, if you have credibility in their in their eyes, and you and you get their trust, they'll give you the shirt off their back. They're terribly generous. They're terribly supportive. Um, they they understand the benefit of hard work. And so, um, you know, it's it's hard to believe I've worked for these folks um, for about 22 years. I've just finished my 12th year as president of the organization. What was your first role with NBWA? Uh, I was actually hired at the end of 1996 as the director of industry affairs. So I did a lot of state stuff. I got my hands dirty in a whole bunch of different areas, was promoted, and, and then took the reins uh, about 10 years later. That's great. Well, a great trajectory for you. Absolutely. So thinking back to that day when you started with NBWA, how would you say the political environment in D.C. has changed? Well, I, I, I think it's changed an awful lot. I think where we are right now is, is very difficult because in a lot of ways we're dealing in a very partisan, in a very, uh, in some, sometimes, in some ways, toxic environment. There's a great deal of criticism, um, and, and some of this started 20 years ago when, when uh, because of the pressures of re-election, members of Congress did not move their families up here. You know, the whole notion of the Tuesday-Thursday club kind of got started in the middle 90s. But, um, you, you know, there's there's a lot of change, and um, I'm, I'm still one of those beer glasses half-full guys, and I believe that there are things that we can do as advocates that actually swim upstream and that differentiate us. Um, I mentioned that a little earlier, but the um, one of the things that we started um, about two years ago, and this is really interesting, um, is we started doing bipartisan fundraising events. And we invite the members of Congress to come to us with our team, and we sit down, and it's an hour, door to door, 
and we call it Beers with Peers. I love and, it. And the idea is you've got to meet somebody that you didn't know very well. And with 435 house members yeah, specifically, that's that's pretty easy to do. Yeah, how so, did you know everybody? So it's been great. So we've, we've uh, you know, obviously the members know, they know what uh, what's expected. We're not surprising anybody. But it's been great to watch some friendships get established and some people meet each other and visit. We've seen people go on to co-sponsor legislation, stuff that has nothing to do with our agenda. But it's been very, very positive to see how this, you know, one small thing helps bring people together. I think that will go a long way towards changing the way politics has become in town. I mean, I remember when we first came to town, it was... Uh, very, at least it appeared, much more collegial. You had members from across the aisle doing trips together, having dinner together, sometimes even living in the same group house. And now it seems to be a penalty. And you get penalized in the primary if you reach across and extend a hand. Or if you're seen to somebody in different political situations. I, I think that's true. And I think that's why, as advocates, we've got to do everything we can to normalize bipartisanship. Um, I think anytime you get folks, you know, when the lights are off and the camera's gone away, there is an understanding and there is a willingness to work together. Um, and by the same token, you know, the press doesn't report on a lot of the things that, that are being done day in and day out in a bipartisan manner. But that having been said, um, we've got to, I think, at every turn look for opportunities to make new friends and bring people together. Well, in closing, let me ask you for your definition of a successful advocate. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, um, the, the thing about um, advocacy is, is to me, very much like what I consider the definition of politics. Um, I have a son who just turned 21, and for those of you all that have had children that have been reaching the age of legal alcohol consumption, we breathed a sigh of relief in March when Cole turned 21. But about uh, a dozen years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was working on an issue, and I was trying to explain to him we were trying to get something done. And we were trying to help some others with something so that we could we could all be successful. And it was funny because he was 10, maybe 11 years old, and he said, so dad, what you're saying is politics is helping people get what they want so you can get what you want. And strangely, I think that? that is, you know, Mal's a babe, Mal's a babe. But I think that is, that is uh, what I believe is key to being a successful advocate. You want to fight, you want to compete, you want to advocate, you want to make your case. You know, we're, we're, we all have that interest in running up the score and, and having a PR and beating whatever our last personal best was. But the whole notion of understanding that, you know, 80% of something is better than 20% of nothing, I think is how we get this this kind of thing righted. And I think that's very reflective of my past here on advocacy. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap this up. That's about all the time we have left here on 80 Proof Politics. But let me just thank you, Craig. Bill, it's been a pleasure. It's a real joy having you join us on our inaugural episode, and we look forward to continuing the conversation down the road. And remember, kids, no matter what you think about the current state of politics here in D.C., whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers. I was too enamored. Again.
We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.